In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Of course, Jesus begins by telling us to listen to this parable. And he then proceeds to tell us the parable that's often known as the parable of the wicked tenants. And so a reminder that whenever we come to Jesus' parables in the Gospels, we first should invite the Holy Spirit to open our ears to hear what Christ is saying. Because as we remember, Jesus has already told us that the effects of the parables will be to close ears. He says they will close the ears and harden the hearts of those who do not believe. And we'll see that this happens in this parable as well. The elders and the priests in the temple hear this parable and they understand it quite well because they understand that Jesus is saying something about them. The parable was not hard to understand for them, but it serves its purpose by showing the true intentions of their hearts. And as we see at the end of our reading, they're furious with him. They want to arrest him immediately, but they know they won't get away with it in the light of day. And so the telling of this parable does indeed harden the hearts of those who are not interested in the gospel of Jesus. What the authorities who heard the parable know immediately is that they are the wicked tenants. Throughout the Old Testament, and these elders in the temple, they're Old Testament scholars, so they pick up on what Jesus is saying. But throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called a vineyard. The image is that God took a vine out of Egypt and planted it in a promised land to grow. He planted his word in this vineyard so that it would bear fruit for the whole world to see. And then there were tenants to tend to this growth. And this is straight from Isaiah 5, which was our first reading. And Jesus now draws on that language. But to begin to understand that parable, we have to deal with the question of what the tenants were doing in the vineyard to begin with. Why do the tenants kill the servants? Why do they kill the son? And so on the most basic level, we see they want to keep the harvest for themselves. The reality is this isn't their vineyard. They did not plant the vines. They didn't do the work. Their job was to watch over things while the master was gone. But when the harvest comes, they don't want the master to have what is his. So they reject and kill his servants, and finally they decide that they will reject and kill the master's son in an effort to keep that which does not belong to them. But on another level, we have to think that these wicked tenants don't believe that judgment will ever come for them. They have to believe since the master is far away in another country on some other business, and that since they have the watchtower in the vineyard, that they're not really scared of the judgment because they'll see him coming and they'll know what to do. And so in their minds, they have worked out a scheme that will allow them to keep what does not belong to them. And now as we apply that to the elders to whom Jesus is speaking, we can see that the leaders of the people had come to see themselves as the salvation of Israel. These are the ones who controlled access to the temple, where through the purchase of sacrifices, the people were given assurance of their forgiveness of sins. These were the teachers and preachers of the law. They got to tell people how to be righteous, how to earn God's favor by being obedient to the law. They were the experts. They were the ones who got to decide who was in and who was out. And there was a great deal of power and pride in being the gatekeeper. And so when the son comes to gather the harvest by preaching the free forgiveness of sins through faith in him, 
they see that they can't actually save anyone. The identity they thought they had, the power they thought they had, the pride they thought they had are all shattered by the coming of Christ because Christ has come to bring salvation outside of the law. Christ has promised salvation through faith, not through behavior modification, not through the blood of goats and bulls, not through all the things humans can control by the law, but by faith in him alone. And so the elders refused to hand over the harvest. They refused to give up control over what they believe they control. The gospel message is a great threat to those who want so badly to place hope in something other than Christ. Hearts that are hardened by hearts that are hardened to God's word always reject the gospel message. Hearts that are hardened don't want to hear it. What the wicked tenants don't account for, which Christ will come to assert, is that the time of judgment does in fact come for them. The master does come. Jesus quotes Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. When Christ is crucified, the leaders of the people will stand in judgment. They've rejected the master's son, they've rejected Christ, and they've rejected God himself. But then we can turn the parables to ourselves as well. Because what we'll hear when we do so is that we, along with the leaders of the people, stand in judgment. It was not just the leaders in the temple who would reject Christ on the cross. So we read in the Passion stories, the disciples rejected him as well. The whole world rejected him. At best, there were a few women loyal enough that they followed the cross and pitied Jesus. But for three hours on Good Friday, the whole world rejected Christ except for one thief who was given the gift of faith, who saw Christ on the cross for who he was, everyone else rejected him. And so you and I, along with the leaders of Israel, along with the whole world, stood guilty with everyone else before the cross. And our sinful nature does not look to Christ's suffering on the cross and say, there's the glory of God. There's no part of our sinful human nature that looks to the bloody, weak, silent Christ on the cross and wants to confess that there is the king over all creation. We want to be repulsed. We want to be embarrassed. And we're all guilty of rejecting Christ because like the wicked tenants, we want the glory for ourselves. We want the riches and the power that the world promises. We want the world to know that we are wonderful people who deserve a claim. We want behavior modification, we want success, we want feeling good about ourselves, we want to save ourselves, we want to control our salvation, but we don't want the cross. St. Paul says the same things in Philippians. He lists out all the things he once put confidence in. His circumcision, his ancestry, his education, his religious zeal, his blameless pursuit of the law. Right? And we're no different than St. Paul in this regard. We're no different than the elders that Jesus condemned. In our sinfulness, all of us will seek to be confident in anything but Christ. Whether that's confidence in ourselves, our own abilities, confidence in what the world promises, we all seek after that which is not found in the cross. And now the cross, as Jesus tells us, the thing which we reject it becomes our cornerstone. The cornerstone is the block which makes for an unshakable foundation. 
right? The cornerstone orients everything else. When the cornerstone is properly set, everything else falls in line. But when the cornerstone fails, everything else will fail. The cornerstone joins all other pieces together in proper union. Here what Christ says is that him rejected, that Christ on the cross will become our cornerstone. He has become our cornerstone. He has become the thing that is our unshakable foundation. He has become the thing which unites us. But he's also become the cornerstone because he has universally condemned all of us in his rejection. All of us are guilty of the death of Christ. We all committed the sins which he bore on the cross. We are all guilty of wanting to find salvation in anything except God's word of promise. But in the same way, the cornerstone will unite us in the gospel. Because we are all condemned by our sin and by our rejection of the word, so also are we now all united in God's kingdom by the resurrected Christ who gives us his word of forgiveness. We sit here together this morning as part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church because we all share the same status together. We are sinners who have been forgiven by the risen Christ. This is how the stone we rejected has become our cornerstone. Christians come together not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. We stand or we sit here united this morning as sinners forgiven. We're not united by our morals, by our good works, by our ancestry, by anything, but by what Christ has done for us. But the interaction following the parable of the wicked tenants should remind us of a certain reality. Those who do not have the Holy Spirit to enlighten their hearts will oppose the gospel of Christ. Even those who sit in church pews, those who confess to believe in God, will often come to work against the gospel. And the preaching of the word always has this effect. The Holy Spirit uses the preaching of the gospel to call us, enlighten us with his gifts, to sanctify us, to keep us in true faith. But where the Holy Spirit is not present, the word hardens hearts. Hardened hearts hear the preaching of faith and reject it. Rather than hold on to the promises given to us in Christ, they stand in condemnation under the law and they reject Christ and they put their trust in themselves. I think it's no coincidence that Psalm 80 is our psalm this morning. Psalm 80 in verse 13 says, The wild boar of the forest has ravaged the vineyard. Well, famously, when Martin Luther was excommunicated by the Pope, this was the, the verse used to describe him. The Pope and the Pope's theologians called Luther a wild boar who was ravaging the church. Right? These leaders in the church were opposing the preaching of the gospel. And so when Martin Luther picked up the gospel and brought its light to the darkness of the medieval church, there were many in power who were terrified. They knew the preaching of the gospel threatened everything. It threatened their control, it threatened their power, their reason to exist. The preaching of the gospel declared freedom in Christ. Not freedom in acts of penance, not freedom in the purchase of indulgences, not freedom in our own works of righteousness, but freedom in what Christ has done alone. And so many in power opposed Luther. And this just doesn't apply to Luther. This is universal. Wherever the gospel is preached, there will be sinners who oppose it. There will always be tenants who reject the Son, 
who has come to claim his harvest. And we should not be surprised by this. Instead, we should be all the more steadfast in placing our faith in Christ. The temptation will always be there to believe that we are the ones who save ourselves. We are the ones who will save our family, our friends, our communities, our country. We believe that we are little saviors. But when we believe that lie, that we are the owners of the harvest, that we are our own saviors, then we reject Christ. When we begin to believe that we know more than God's word to us, we reject Christ. When we refuse to put our trust in the master of the vineyard, we refuse the son. As Christians, we hold on to a different promise than the promises of the world. The world says you can save yourself. The world says you are deserving of heaven because you are a good, unique, delightful person. But that's not the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that Christ is the savior of sinners. Therefore, sinner, live your life knowing that he is your cornerstone. His word is for you. You are forgiven by faith in him. He has come for you. He has come to die for you. He has come to bring you forever into God's kingdom. So don't refuse him when his word of promise is preached to you. Instead, put your trust into it. Let his word be your comfort. When the son comes to you with his word of promise of forgiveness, put everything else aside and put your trust into it. The son has come for you. Don't reject him. The son has come for you with forgiveness, with the word of promise, and with life everlasting. Amen.